You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another edition of Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists. I'm Corey Oakley, and there's Ben sitting over here. Hey, guys. How's it going? And we're excited today. We have a special guest with us, Mr. T.D. Van Middlesworth, which is a mouthful. Say hey, T.D. <laughs> hey, guys. And we'll let T.D. introduce himself in just a second. First off, Ben and I would like to thank you for, one, most of all, listening, but all the questions that we've received. We have been just it's been a landslide over the past couple of months. The question and answer podcast was a hit, I think. I and think I have finally, took me about a month and a half. It took us, a, took you a while. I'll say that. I think I finally got through all those emails yeah. and it was awesome. It was great to have as many questions as we had. A lot of people with walleye questions, a lot of people with smallmouth bass questions, a lot of people with varying questions across the state. And so it was interesting to see what everybody was interested in. And also it was great to be able to help as many folks as we could. So I know that some of our other biologists probably are tired of me sending them questions, but that's what we do. I'm their boss. Keep sending it to them. Oh yeah. It'll be all right. We're happy to help. Yeah. We're happy to help. Well, today we're uh, talking about something that maybe not many people know a whole lot about because we don't really talk about it. We always talk about largemouth particularly in reservoirs in our state. We don't talk a lot about riverine largemouth, but TD's going to share with us about riverine largemouth, so I'm excited about that. I think it's going to be a great podcast. Oh, yeah. Well, before we get going, TD, introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm the District 2 fisheries biologist, and I basically work on all the waters from Pitt County down to New Hanover County. So that pretty much is the tar noose, to name a few others, the Pongo, White Oak, New, Newport, it's really cool. I love it. So TD started working for me when he started with the Wildlife Commission. We won't hold that against him. And his training is nearly complete. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you guys that if it's in central coastal North Carolina and it has to do with anything aquatic, TD is its number one fan. Like yeah. He is a big fan of the region. He's 100% invested in it. And for one, I'd say we're lucky to have him in the position that he's in because he's truly devoted to the cause and he's all about helping folks. I had a lady reached out to me, called me on the phone because she took all the time in the world to help her load up a kayak at the boat ramp the other day. So he's a good one, guys. And he also likes to fish a little bit, right, TD? Yeah, I was going to mention that. And just like you guys and, you know, our people listening in, I grew up hunting and fishing, you know, deer hunting primarily and then doing a lot of bass fishing. Bass has always been my favorite fish, followed by catfish, but I still do it a lot. I do it with my family every chance I can get, and I just feel so fortunate to be working where I am because these rivers are amazing, and there's some really good fishing out there. So, so My favorite story about TD was he just had just started. He had just sampled maybe one or two places, like fresh, green He's green. Green, green, green. Green, green. 
like your shirt. Green. One of our other biologists got a call and the guy was complaining about the bass fishing. And I was like, I don't know what he's talking about. TD doesn't know anything. He went to a creek the other day and caught like three, four pound bass, you know? Yeah. So it was funny that he was just almost immediately plugged into what was going on in the fishery. And we went and sampled some more areas right after that. And turns out luckily enough for us that the bass fishing was pretty strong that year. So. Coastal bass fishing is a different beast. It is. It is a different beast. Like Corey said, most of us, because of the bass fishing culture, when we think about bass fishing, we think about reservoirs and lakes and big, wide open bodies of water. And to be honest, coastal rivers are kind of a hidden gem. I think they're often overlooked. A lot of people don't really take the time to go out there and figure them out. And I think from the fishing that I've done in my career, that bass fishing in a river is often very predictable. If you find them in one place, I mean, this is true everywhere, but in (laughs) rivers specifically, if you find them in one place, all you got to do is find another place that looks just like that, and there'll be bass there as well. So because there's some constant flow, there's some easy patterns to kind of pick up on. Mm-hmm. And once you say, okay, they're sitting behind flowdowns or they're sitting in the bends of rivers or they're sitting, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot. I don't want to say sometimes a lake pattern can be a little more subtle, but in a river pattern, sometimes it's a lot easier to find certain times of year, obviously. Sure. But yeah. But our coastal rivers, the Roanoke and the Chowan are well known. Yes. You they know, are. As, as far as, you know, hidden gems. The bass fishing around Plymouth, North Carolina is not a hidden gem. No, everybody every, knows everybody knows about it. That's Chowan's right. very similar. But when you get to the tar, you get to the noose, you get to the Cape Fear, even, you know, the white oak, the new, a lot of people aren't even thinking about bass as much. But mm-hmm. these rivers offer very different bass fisheries, but they do have plenty of opportunity. And as we always say, if you live close to one of these you should plug into it because yep. there's definitely something there for you. So Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, growing up on the coast, Ben and I, we had probably a little bit different experiences um, bass fishing. You know, Ben grew up in the Roanoke, Chowan area, and bass fishing there has always been really, really good. I mean, consistently. I mean, a hurricane or two, and we'll talk about that, but a hurricane or two might throw it off for a little while. But in general, bass fishing's always been really good in the Albemarle Sound region. But as you came south, as a child, you know, bass fishing, it was popular. And there was a lot of people bass fishing, but it ebbed and flowed a lot. And it was mostly down more than it was up. At least that's what it seemed like to me. You caught a lot of little fish, a lot of foot long, maybe a little bit smaller, maybe 10 inches. But you never really saw a lot of, you know, those three, four, five pound fish. But then past... I don't know what, half a decade, maybe, past five years, something like that. Man, it has been on fire in the coastal plain. There's been some good fish around. There's been some good fish around. We have seen good fish electrofishing. People have caught good fish. Yeah, it's just been really exciting to see that fishery. Cross your fingers, no hurricane. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, you know, hurricanes make all the difference. But TD, tell us a little bit about the water that you cover in terms of the bass fishing there, like our listeners are going to want to know some things like 
if I was going bass fishing in District 2, where would I go? Not yeah. Maybe not the exact spot, but, you know, different <laughs> The third tree on the left. <laughs> the third tree. That's what they really want to know. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely promised a few guys that I see, you know, on occasion out there, like they're like, shh, keep it a secret. <laughs> I've made that mistake as a fish biologist. Well, they should be here, you know, the exact spot. You give them the, you know, this is where they should be. And people go up there and they're like, no, I've not. never caught a fish there. You're yeah. a moron. I'm like, yeah. I'm probably a moron, but there's still fish there. <laughs> just real quick, that made me think. One of my friends uh, was just fishing Contentia Creek recently, and he was there the day before I got there with my family, and he's like, man, it's good right now. The water was kind of high. There was some bait coming out of a swamp. The bass were stacked up in there. He's like, you got to get out there and take your family and fishing. So I did over the weekend, and it was kind of like what you said. I went there. I was expecting a lot. And the water kind of fell out and the bait was gone and I just didn't catch it much at yeah, all. Couldn't so, figure out the pattern. Fishing, you know, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and it was still beautiful to be out there and fun, but. Yeah. And I mean, we're used to reservoirs coming up and down, but rivers come up and down in a, a, lot. In a way yeah. faster. Yeah. And when you talk to some of these guys that fish these rivers, they know, you know, it's going to crest here, which means four days later, it's going to crest 20 miles downstream, four days later. So if you get a rain a week later, it's going to hit Newburn, and they've kind of got it figured out, you know. Luckily, most of our rivers have USGS gauges that you can look at and kind of see those patterns too. And the cool thing is you can also go back and look at the pattern after a big rainfall event and see how the water responded. So, But also, talking about conditions and stuff like that that you're looking at for bass, not only is it rainfall that's causing the water to move up and down, you got a lot of wind that causes a lot of that water to rise and fall in the coastal plain. So depending on how low you are in the river, like if you're at Newburn on the Noose, or if you're in the New, or you're in the Newport, or any of those, depending on the wind direction, it's driving water up into the river. So that can rise pretty rapidly. I mean, people right. that live down there know that very well. But, you know, if you're going down there fishing, if it's got an easterly component, you know, the water's going to be rising. If it's got a southerly or southwesterly component, depending on the river, the water's probably going to be falling. So you have to kind of know those things when you're going down there to fish for those kinds of things. And the smaller rivers are tidal, you know, the White Oak, the New, Lockwood Folly, some of these other smaller rivers, they're tidal. So that's a whole nother element that you have. Yeah. It's different in fishing and reservoirs. And I think that's the take home is you're thinking you're going to go and it's going to be like Jordan Lake. It's not. It's going to be totally different. Yep. Well, I would say I'm really excited to get into this because it's certainly worth sharing and I want people excited about the resources on the coastal plain. But in my opinion, just doing the surveys, the fishing that I've done in District 2, I would say that the Noose River is the strongest for bass fishing right now. And without giving too much away, while there's, I've seen quality bass from Newburn to the tail race of Raleigh, no joke, all the way up on the main stem and in Tribs, probably what I would recommend is Newburn to Kinston area. There's a lot of creeks. And, and that's a lot of water. A lot of water. Oh, yeah. And it's worth exploring. So. Yeah. Hear that, guys? It's worth exploring. That is a unveiled tip. <laughs> <laughs> Go explore. <laughs> yeah. You're definitely right. I believe that the noose in your district is probably the strongest bass fishery right now. A few years ago, we collected the largest bass. It was a pig. That has ever been collected in the entire coastal region, as best I can tell from our data. It might be the biggest bass we've collected completely in the state. Like, 
the wildlife commission's collected right in my 20 years we've not seen a fish that big okay well Corey's got some vast piedmont experience too and i would dare say that would push the envelope in the mountains as well but it's a unique story td and i were on the boat we collected a 12 pound bass and it was a monster as you might expect it was huge the very interesting thing about this and i'm not going to tell y'all so if you email me and ask where was it? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but two years prior, I shocked up the biggest bass I'd ever seen, like directly across from the creek. And so I'm never one of the guys that's like, oh, it's the same fish. Might have been the same fish. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ask him his name the second time? Yeah, we should have named him the first should've time. Then we would have known. Yep, that's right. But anyway, so that's something to take home is places that hold big fish, whether it's the same one or not, tend to hold big fish. I think that's the message there is if you find an area that has a little bit better size class, it's probably worth checking out from time to time. TD, we talk about habitat, and you said that from Kinston downstream till you get too salty is probably the best bass fishing, and that's likely because of the habitat, correct? Yeah, to be honest, I think there's a few things going on. For one, yeah, great habitat. You know, in the spring, there's lots of places for bass to go and spawn. But there's also a lot of food throughout the the whole year. I mean, the noose, especially in those areas, those creeks, I think just provide a lot of food for a lot of fish. And there's a lot of great forage there. I mean, you got gizzard shad, you got threadfin shad, mullet, sunfish, all these things that, you know, largemouth bass can eat. But in the spring, you have a really cool thing that happens. We have our run of river herring, and we've seen the bass take advantage of that. As we all know, they're opportunistic fish species, and uh, when the food's there, it's hard to beat a good river herring. So Swimming pork chop. Yeah, I was fixing to say, hard to beat a swimming pork chop. Now, that's an important, and those are in nearly every single one of our coastal Mm -hmm. rivers, is we have a herring run of some level. And I have always, and because of the life of a fish biologist, spring is a very busy, busy time for us. But as an angler, I really have wanted to devote some time to fishing the Heron Run, not for Heron or Shad, but fishing the Heron Run for bass. Mm -hmm. Because when we're on the front of the shock boat for about a two-week window, we see some really interesting things. And you see these Heron up in the stumps spawning, and then right on their tails are bass, drivers, you know, big catfish. Big catfish, yep. You name it. I mean... Yeah. They're at the buffet, so to speak. They're all right there. Yeah. So big baits. Yep. Big swim baits, big glide baits, giant spinner baits with big double willow leaves on it. That time of year, I would think that those would be your choices. And the time of year, we're talking March, April. Yeah, typically. Whenever that water. Pre-spawn. Pre-spawn. The heron run is before the bass spawn. Yeah. It's usually March. It can be sometimes as early as February that we see river herring and uh, bass start to really move up, you know, thick into those coastal uh, river creeks. So, But we see that on the Chowan. Yeah, we see that yeah. on the Roanoke. We see it on the Tar. It happens in every river. So it's not like everybody needs to drive to the lower noose, yep. you know, the yeah. third week of March. It happens. There's a fishery if anywhere on the coast you could get to. It's coast-wide. Yeah, for sure. But we're seeing these really, really big bass and lots of them. It's not just one 12-pounder. We're seeing, although that was amazing, 
you know, we're consistently seeing eight, nine, ten pound fish. So y'all spent a little bit of time this spring mm-hmm. doing weekly sampling to kind of look at some of that in conjunction with the heron sampling work you were doing. Correct. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So when I came on, it was, I guess it was around 2020, but we started seeing more and more of these bass. So in the spring, and you know, and this has been the past few years, this year was the best we've ever seen. We saw more big bass this year than ever, but we've been collecting data on it, just getting lengths, weights on these bass. We figured it's good to have the data while it's there and start to try to pick at, you know, what we're seeing, why we're seeing it. So when you say, let's get specific, you're a biologist. When you say big bass, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? Yep. I mean, one day, here, this is a great way to put it. We had one day, and this it wasn't the only day we had like this this year, where we caught like 20 to 30 bass. We weren't even targeting bass. We were actually targeting river herring. The bass were just in there eating them, like Ben said. But we're collecting the data off them as we get them. Our best five on one day was over 30 pounds. Everybody that's a bass fisherman. <laughs> just went, I mean, <laughs> how do I book my trip? Where is this lower noose river? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you were fishing a bass fishing tournament, yeah, 30-pound bag, that's incredible. <laughs> yes. There's yes. no one who would say, that's okay. That's not enough for me. <laughs> yeah. 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 But the spring is good, you know, obviously, and it puts the fish shallow and vulnerable in a pre-spawn. Obviously, the spawn is good. The cool thing about the noose in the summertime, and the tar is the same way. In these creeks in the summertime, the water drops down, The water, you get a lot less flow. And a lot of these backwater creeks, I mean, they got plenty of nutrients. And these backwater creeks look like a farm pond, and they are full of shad. Yeah. So if they only had heron to eat, they wouldn't do very good. But they've got heron, they've got shad, they've got thread fins, they've got gizzard shad, they've got bluegills. There's a smorgasbord of food for these fish. These rivers are very productive. And because of that, it's an opportunity for good growth. You know what? Let's talk about hurricanes. Let's do it. Because that's the one thing that we got. It's a drive. It's a driver to the population. It's something that affects the population over a period of time. And while we're riding this high right now is we haven't had, particularly on the noose, we haven't had that hurricane that has caused that inland flooding. It's not the coastal hurricanes. It's the inland flooding hurricanes that do the damage to the population. As Ben has well documented and knows because he worked in District 2 during some of those hurricanes that caused that inland flooding, you know, it causes this massive oxygen problem. Yeah, Irene, yeah. Lawrence, Matthew. Seems to be the eye storms that tend to be the most damaging in terms of inland flooding. Floyd, Floyd was one. That's a eyes and ifs. One third into the alphabet range. The ifs, the if storms, yeah. the eyes and ifs seem to be the ones that, you know, Floyd, I can remember Floyd in 99. It literally looked like you could walk across the river with dead fish, right. you know. And so it, it's a natural thing. It's something that happens that obviously we have zero control over. And it kind of resets the population, and we're riding a high right now because we've had hurricanes, but we haven't had that dramatic dial from an inland flooding hurricane in a little while. So right. it's been good. So we're, my math is right, approximately, give me a little wiggle room, we're approximately 10 years off from the last That's right. bad fish kill. Yeah. And that's really across the board. Yeah. 
Cape Fears had a little bit sooner taste. Yeah, was it Matthew? I yeah. think I think Matthew hit the Cape Fear pretty hard. But the same things going on in the Roanoke and the Choan yep. as well. Because a lot of these hurricanes, they're so big that they impact more than one drainage. Absolutely. Sure. But that being said, you know we're about ten years out from a pretty serious fish kill, and what that does is that keeps growth rates dynamic. And now we're at the point where these fish are kind of reaching their maximum size and age. Yep. And so these fish have kind of been the first to the buffet. So they to were speak. either the survivors or they were the first year class. The first year class yeah. of fish. Yeah. We did some work right after, I think, Irene. We were seeing lots of, considering the fish kill, we were seeing these bass and we weren't sure if they were young of year fish mm-hmm. or if they were one-year-old fish. Mm-hmm. And if they were one-year-old fish, it made no sense because it was like, well, why would just the small fish have survived? And so we grabbed some, we pulled the odalis off of them. That's a bone in their inner ear. It lays rings down like a tree. I'm getting a little science nerdy okay. on everybody. Lays rings down like a tree. We looked at them, and these fish were within a their first year. Yeah. So from whenever they hatched, yeah. you know, they were eight, nine inches by the fall, yeah. which is better than farm pond growth. It's fast growth, yeah. So these fish had plenty to eat. They started out with a really high growth rate, and that's kind of carried them through. And it's really helped them out a lot. And so now in these surveys, things are looking really good in our coastal rivers. We hadn't talked about the tar. I mean, we've said the tar's okay, too. Oh, yeah. Talk about the tar a little yeah. bit, TD. I mean, the tar is actually my favorite river, while the noose is amazing. We know. <laughs> we know it's your favorite. I live near the tar. The listeners so. don't. <laughs> <laughs> but there's many reasons for that. We can go into that. But, yeah, the, the as far as the bass fishing goes in the tar, I love bass fishing the tar. We don't see as big a bass on the tar. I've talked to a lot of fishermen. I'm not speaking for all the fishermen. I hope there's people out there catching 12-pound bass. Send us pictures. We yes, would love to I, see I it. I would love to see it. <laughs> yeah, I would I'd love to see it. And I'm not going to doubt it. It's not possible. But the biggest that we typically see on the tar, though, is around 7, 8 pounds. The biggest that I, I would say just fishing, I mean, the average that I see, just they're like little pigs, little footballs, I like to call them. Just great body condition. There's lots of food on the tar, like the noose, very productive river, probably three, you know, three, four pounds. I see a lot of three, four pound largemouth bass on the tar. So, and one of my favorite spots, it's no secret, is uh, Trainer's Creek. It's a great little bass fishing hole right there. So, right there in Washington. Yep. yep. We got yep. a boat ramp there. Yeah. Yes, we do. A lot of people fish there. I've seen a lot of tournaments in there, but there's a reason for that. It's a great, bass fishing spot the numbers you know yeah, definitely yeah. like we're talking about big fish yeah this is just a great spot if you want to go to just catch good number of river bass that's the place really all of these rivers from northwest river tolls creek area all the way down to the cape fear these lower stretches of the river before the salinity starts to influence yeah, things yeah and we'll get right. into that in a minute but these above the salt wedge, but in the lower stretches of the river, generally, it's a, traditionally kind of what Corey harkened back to. It was a numbers game. The size is a fairly recent thing. Yes, it is. But it has always been a place where you could go and catch plenty of bass. So the action is good. You know, these fish are, the thing that I think is cool about them is like you take Lake Norman, Great Lake, 
lots of bass fishing pressure. Did you say it was a great lake? Yeah, great lake. Okay. Okay. Jordan. <laughs> that's a great lake. That's a great for bass lake. Yeah. Great lake for bass fishing. Yeah, okay. A yeah. population of Norman has pros and cons. Yeah. But it's still a place you can go and catch a lot of bass. Oh, you can go catch 50 bass at, at Norman easy. Not it, a problem. Yeah. So, but anyway, so let's take Jordan. Yeah. High quality fishery. High quality fishery. Yep. High quality pressure. Yes. You Lots know, of pressure. These coastal rivers, there's stretches that you can't get to certain times of the year because of water level. There's stretches that are hard to get to. There's stretches that really don't get near the pressure that a reservoir that's adjacent to a large yeah. urban area would get. Yeah. I mean, times are changing because we're having an influx of people in the state. But through my youth and through really up through college, my dad and I went fishing every weekend. I mean, we went every Saturday. I mean, I went home from college every Saturday, just about every Saturday, and went fishing with my dad. He didn't make many friends in college. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't care about friends. So The fish were biting. The who fish cares? were biting. So who cares? That was my mindset at the time. But that stretch of the noose that TD talked about, you know, from Kinston to Newburn, there were days on a Saturday we might not have seen anybody. Right. There's still days like that. I mean... Some days you might see three or four, but generally, I mean, to the point, it was a joke of my dad and I's that like when we saw somebody, my dad was like, you forgot to close the gate. <laughs> you let somebody in because you just never saw anybody. That's the great, one of the great things about that area of the world is that if you can get out there and explore like TD talked about, if you like being by yourself, you can practically be by yourself. All right. So that was one of the things like if you feel like, man, I've been beating my head against the wall, oh, yeah. you know, I feel like these fish are uber pressured like yeah. come visit a coastal river and see what that's all about because the level of exploitation is very different if you're yes. used to a heavy not that there's not i mean plymouth lots of quality lots. bass tournaments yeah. lots of clubs come there every yeah. weekend in fact major league fishing is coming next spring to the show one right so. so it's not that there's not any it's not like it's an unknown thing it's just that one you can spread out you can make a little bit of a run. Some of these areas are just harder to get to. And so as you're exploring, you can find some areas that takes a little bit of effort to get there, but also the fishing can be really good because they haven't seen as many baits, you know, is where I was going with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is I think even in my youth, if you were going bass fishing, which I did not do a lot of, I did a lot of sunfish fishing, the activity was pretty fast. You could catch a lot of fish in a day if they were biting. Like you said, Ben, they just don't see the baits. They don't get the pressure that that a lot of these Piedmont fisheries get, for sure. And if the water's high, these bass are in places that no one can get to. These water fish are oh, yeah, a were, mile back in the swamp oh, yeah, somewhere. Back in, yeah, I mean, because I mean, my parents live about three miles off the river, and when the water's high, you can go in their backyard and catch bass. Right. You know, so. We talked a little bit about coastal bass, like salty bass mm -hmm. and let's talk a little bit about it because they have a whole different world some of these lower creeks let's say blunts creek off of the pamlico river slocum hancock dawson dawson's has bass in it bay river bay river south river yep. has bass in the back of it as you get in the albemarle the salt wedge isn't quite as pronounced that's right but what we see in those fisheries is a very different phenomenon is one the spawning success is low because if it's too salty, the juveniles just don't make it. 
but two, the way they live, the way they eke out their life in a heavy salt. I mean, there's bass in the creeks on Runica Island. Yeah. And the way that they eke out their life is as very different. A fish only has but so much energy, and they get their energy from food, and they're going to devote it to breathing and living. They're going to devote it to building fat reserves, and they're going to devote it to eggs and reproduction. That's what they're doing. That's where they send their energy to. So if living in a salty environment taxes your breathing and your respiratory and if you're trying to get rid of – because a saltwater fish – is trying to oh here comes lose the their salt. <laughs> here comes the science. And a freshwater fish is trying to keep their salt. That's you right. know, because of a Osmosis Jones stuff. Yeah. I like the reference. I've seen it. <laughs> I got a three-year-old. <laughs> so a bass who's trying to keep his salt, you put him in a salty environment, and there's a little bit of a mismatch in his physiology. Yeah. So in order to combat that, a lot of times it pays for that fish to stay a little bit smaller. He's not going to put as much. A big fish has a lot harder time osmoregulating. So, yes, you probably won't find a 10-pounder in a canal in Roanoke Island. As soon as I say that, somebody's going to call and say that that they did. And I hope they do. (laughs) But if we're playing the law of averages. The law of averages is they're going to be small. They're going to be kind of top end, maybe three or four pounds. And a lot of them are going to be in that two pound, but they are going to be footballs. Yeah. I mean, honestly, some of the biggest bass I have ever caught have been speckled trout fishing. Caught them on a mirror lure. Caught them on. That's awesome. Some kind of (laughs) like gulp shrimp or something like that in the back of a creek, like back of Dawson's or these creeks that are tidal, you know, and have fresh and salt water in them. But yeah, I mean, probably the biggest bass I've ever caught was about mm, seven pounds. And I caught that at the train trestle at Newburn, and I'd been catching flounder all day long. Flounder flounder and speckle trout all day long. And Corey just walked back everything I just said. (laughs) (laughs) No, I wasn't trying to do that. I was just saying... Most of the bass that I've caught doing that have been small, exactly right. what you said. You know, they're a foot long, maybe three pounds, but I was just saying, you can, you come, can. A, you can oh, yeah. come across one. That's right. And I'm not the bass fisherman. I'll be the first to raise my hand and say, that's not my game. So, But as a general rule, your average size, the fish is not going to be as big as he can be when he's in a suboptimal habitat. And every time I've caught him, I'm like, why are you here? Who pushed you out of your home? <laughs> Why are you here? You know, kind of thing. It's really neat to be it somewhere oh, that's yeah. kind of that marginal habitat and what you see. And we see the same thing because we see every once in a while a marine fish that's like you have left the reservation yeah. completely. Yeah, like you know? when Southern Flounder and up here at the dam at Raleigh. You're like, what's going on here? D.D. and I got one day got a mangrove snapper way up river, and I was like, you have, you're lost. <laughs> you're lost. You are lost. <laughs> you're you supposed to merge left, not right, right. <laughs> onto the highway. Right. So, you know, maybe that's some of those unidentified flathead dots. We didn't even think mangrove snapper. Mangrove snapper. You never know what you'll see out there. That's the one of the coolest things about coastal rivers is just you get a mix of two worlds, and you never know what you'll find, but... To Ben's point about the phenomenon with the smaller bass, I mean, that's what you typically see in the White Oak, the new Newport, the Pongo River. Yeah, we rarely see in recent surveys, we rarely see, you know, anything largemouth bass-wise over two pounds, three pounds. Occasionally, you might see something a little bigger, but mostly they're 
smaller, but they're they're healthy and they're eating good, like he said, and they're fat. They'd be a lot of fun to catch. But you know, after one of these fish kills, the tournament guys were running to these areas because they have vast yeah, populations right. that are quasi hurricane resistant. That's right. And so there was folks that were running all the way to the Pungo and having a two to three pound average fish and winning tournaments because these other populations had experienced a fish kill. So understanding these systems and understanding where the fish are after one of these devastating events. Now, the cool thing about these hurricanes is that, yes, in the first year or two, it is a tough, grim sight, and you better like some bowfin fishing. You know, I do. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I, knew he, I knew he'd pick up on that. TD likes the rough fish. Yeah, I have a, a bit of a history with that fish, so. <laughs> have to have him back on a bowfin podcast. Right. It'd be, yeah, awesome. It'd be awesome, yeah. But, <laughs> you know, understanding that these fisheries take a hit, but they bounce back resiliently. Yeah. The yeah. noose is the best that it's arguably ever been. And, T.D., how many fish did we stock in the noose after the fish kill? Uh, zero. Zero. <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad you brought, we've come back around the hurricane. You left it a little early for me. It was it hurt my heart, but I let you roll with it. Now that you brought it back, I'm going to talk about it. We often get requests, you just mentioned it, we often get requests after a hurricane, everybody sees these massive fish kills on the river, you know, that we need to stock fish back in order to jumpstart or get the population back going. and it sounds great. It's a very warm and fuzzy feeling. It makes you feel good about what you're doing. But we've done the work. And this is before both of y'all's time when it was an ice storm. It was a ice storm. Isabel. Isabel, 02. Or Irene. I get those two mixed I up. I get them mixed up. It was 03 because I lived in Moorhead City at the time that the hurricane came through. And then I started working for the Wildlife Commission and I left Moorhead City. And that was a storm that went up through Moorhead City and then kind of went across the Albemarle Sound Peninsula and created a massive fish kill in the Roanoke, Chowan, Albemarle Sound area. And, I mean, it was like, there was pictures and it just looked like carpets of dead bass out on the river. And so there was this big impetus by us to study, you know, okay, we've had this massive fish kill. And it was the first really significant fish kill other than Floyd that I can remember on a coastal river. I mean, it was just a lot of fish. And so we decided as an agency that we were going to stock fish back. And we stocked, I don't remember the numbers, it was close to a million fish of various sizes. We stocked eight-inch fish, we stocked six-inch fish, we stocked three-inch fish, we stocked fry, and we marked every single one of these Stupid fish, I promise you. <laughs> I sat in a cold hatchery tagging itty-bitty fish days on end. It was miserable work. But I thought at the time, I'm wondering if this is the way my career is going to go. I'm going to sit in front of a tiger. But anyway, we released all those fish, and then we went back and studied that area for the next 10 years. And I don't remember the number. I want to say we saw one fish returned out of that million fish that we, and I'm spitballing numbers. Very little return on that. It was way below 1% return. And that was kind of the telltale sign. And the fishery recovered just fine. You know, there was bass back in two to three years on the Roanoke, and everybody's like, well, where did these fish go? Because these fish aren't even 
they wouldn't be fish that were spawned. You know, they would be fish that were here. So those fish are, there are fish that are finding pockets to breathe in. Even though it looks like a total kill, it's not a total kill. And the take-home is that stocking in that coastal river system, we'll never see those fish again. They're so accustomed to being able to do it naturally on their own that they don't really need our help, so to speak. It makes us feel good about it, but we're actually probably wasting money doing it. And that's why, I mean, I'm glad we did the work because we got to see that. But going back to what you said about the year after the ice storm on the noose, those little bass were everywhere. Oh, yeah. And I can ground truth that because I was up here working in the Piedmont. My dad called me. He's like, can't catch a sunfish because all the filthy little six-inch bass that are running around <laughs> my bait. <laughs> green trout bait stealers. He's like, these stinking green-headed carp. That's what my dad calls them. He's not, <laughs> a, bass, he's not a bass fan. He's like, these green carp are eating all my baits. <laughs> so it's, it was true. I mean, they were just everywhere. Like everywhere you look, there was little bass. So I'll take what Corey said a step further because we also had a, a fish kill. That one was the, the first one that we studied intensely. Yeah. The next fish kill that we had, we still stocked a Roanoke after it. Yep. We did not stock the noose, and we've been riding the high ever since. Yep. We've got a stocked lake, a river. We've got an unstocked river, and they're both doing fantastically well. There's no visible difference. And the thing that I want to tell anglers when we talk about this is when it comes to hatchery production and what we can produce on our hatcheries, it pales in comparison to what just a handful of bass because we're going to stock a hatchery pond with maybe 25 males 25 females give or take depending on the size of the pond and we're going to get several hundred thousand fry out of the mix give or take you know depending on how well it does we might get a hundred thousand three inch fish right yeah but if that were to happen in the nature you know if we had 150 fish spawning they're producing more than what we can do on our hatcheries. Yeah. Even though the relative number of fish that are out there is low, what they're spawning is very successful because there's no other predators. They yeah. have all the prey that they can stomach. You know, yeah. the brim and everything are bouncing back too, but they're bouncing back and producing little small bluegill fry. And guess what a little small bass eats? A little small bluegill. So They'll eat little small bass too if they're just a little bit bigger. That's right. Bass are hungry. Bass They're are hungry. A lot like me. Yep. So it's almost lunchtime. Yeah. <laughs> so it's amazing how nature just kind of, like we've talked about this before, even when we do these surveys and we see low dissolved oxygen for two weeks or more, it's amazing how fish can find a place that has a little bit of oxygen and they eke it out. And they've been doing it for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and it's just impressive to me. I mean, coastal bass are built different. They yep. can deal with some things. They deal with things in a good year that a reservoir bass never sees. Yep. You know, they see oxygen levels that are three, yeah, three parts per thousand. Maybe lower. You know, yeah, yeah. and they do it every year. You know, they eat it out. A reservoir bass would be floating upside down. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> <laughs> Can't breathe, you know. Yeah. So it's amazing to me how these fisheries are and how dynamic they are because when they get thinned out by a hurricane, the growth rates are so good and they bounce back so fast. And the other thing we learned from that is there's nothing that we can really do except be patient for recovery to happen. Yeah. There's no way it just to takes speed time. up no. 
it takes time to build a five-pound bass. So I'm going to go back to a question. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. We've nerded out a lot. So yeah. we got to... When Kevin was on, I just need to say this because we didn't say it on the crappy podcast. Fish need water. They need water here too. And I need to say it again right now so I don't <laughs> forget it. But yeah. these bass need water and they need water with at least a little bit of oxygen. Just, just a little covered. bit. Yeah, that's right. But one question that we've really kind of gotten away from, and I'm going to bring it back since TD's here, is if you had one bait, you're going bass fishing. On the Tar River, since it's your favorite river, sure. what would your one bait be? Well, I like to eat fish. I do like catch and release a lot. I like to eat fish. So if I'm bass fishing, really, I keep it simple. I do a, a weightless, just on a regular old worm hook, like a seven or eight inch power bait worm in a plum color. That's like my favorite. Weightless power bait. Now, I want to get back into this, I like to eat fish, because you somehow justified your choice with I like to eat yeah. fish. They didn't go together to me, but now... <laughs> no, they're going to. I'm going to tell you. I want to know. <laughs> yeah. You like to eat fish, and you use this bait, and why is that? Sure, I'm glad you asked. Well, I find that uh, using something that's more natural, like a worm or a creature bait, and just letting it cast it into the stumps, the shore, where structure, wherever you think the bass are, I get more bites, more fish that way than throwing anything else in my tackle box. So... so he- he likes to eat fish, which means he likes to catch fish. fish. Yeah. yeah. There is a difference between fishing and catching. Yes. But I can attest to yes. that. <laughs> that is very true. I've done a lot of fishing at times and not a whole lot of catching. <laughs> My catching's better with just a standard worm. And yeah, if I want to get crazy, I'll throw on a red shad culprit, seven and a half inch worm. I like how he said... If I want to get if crazy. I want to get crazy. <laughs> if I'm feeling a little wacky. <laughs> if I'm feeling crazy. <laughs> No, and then, you know, the other thing, I, I since we're talking about favorite baits, and I'm going to do it, for sure, and if anybody wants to join me, just let me know. <laughs> but in the springtime on the news, I will be exploring with a probably a six to eight inch swim bait that looks much like a river herring. So Something whitish, silverish. And I'm going to try to hook into that. My biggest right now bass is, uh, it actually caught it in Illinois. It was uh, in a small farm pond, just a tiny little thing, but... It was a seven and a half pound largemouth bass. It's still my best, but it's nothing to sneeze at, man. So be oh, proud of it. Oh, I'm proud. Yeah, be proud. It's just been a while since I've caught a fish of that size, and I, I just feel like I need to spend you know more time on the noose because I could break it there. And you know who wouldn't want to catch a twelve pound bass? So. Yeah, <laughs> there's probably somebody, but You're it's gonna, not me. If it happens to me. It, <laughs> I would stand in line to catch a 12-pound bass. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, this is the line for the 12-pounders. You know, it's fine. I'll take the 8-pounder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I'll just take the 8-pounder. You know, it's funny. The two baits that he named right off, right off the top was a worm. Yep. And I cannot remember where I was. It was at a fish conference, I think. I'm pretty sure. And they were doing basically studies of bass diets and what bass they eat and, and all that kind of stuff. And the worm, like just, they were doing natural baits. They were like throwing fish at them. They would throw worms at them. They would throw crayfish at them, whatever. They'd eat the worm every time. Even if they weren't hungry, they'd eat the worm. They'd eat the worm. They'd eat the worm. They'd eat the worm. They might let the fish go by. They might let the crayfish go by. They could not let that worm go by. I cannot remember where I saw that, but it was a diet study that they did with natural bait and every time that bass would eat a worm without I failure. believe it. Yeah. So it worked. It makes sense. I yeah. mean, he's using worms and he's very successful at it. So 
Also, you know, I mean, the worm is a chameleon of a bait. Oh, yeah. I mean, it might look like a brim. It might look like a crayfish. It might That's look right. like a lizard. It might look yeah. like something else. So you never know what they're It's hard doing to know. It and yeah. I learned that first. I used to throw green pumpkin with a chartreuse mm-hmm. tail a lot, a lot. And I'd throw it in lizards and worms and everything else. And one day I was watching some sunfish at the boat ramp, just watching them. And I was like, those things are green with a chartreuse tail. Exactly. You know, and I was like, I've been pretending I was a worm this whole time when maybe I was pretending I was a sunfish. And it probably just depends on where it's at and what the fish are feeding on. But that's why I think that worm does so well is because it just mimics a lot of different things. That's true. Yeah. And when they grab that, is it sinking? It's awesome. You know, everybody loves that good largemouth bass bite. There's but. nothing like watching that line just stop. Yep. And that, that you little feel, jump. Yeah, thump. Yeah. That's a, that's a serious the thing. Yep. The thump is real. So the last thing before we get to questions that I, I want to talk about, about bass is we've had several bass podcasts and we have talked about Alabama bass and we have talked about Alabama bass in the western part of our state and what that's meant and talked about them in the Piedmont and what that's meant for our Piedmont fisheries, but the concern is real for our coastal fisheries as well. Absolutely. TD, are you seeing Alabama bass in your region? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I did want to talk about this. So we are seeing Alabama bass, Tar River Reservoir, and just below that on the Tar River, kind of near Rocky Mount. Mm -hmm. So they're there. But as far as like the Noose and the other rivers I mentioned earlier, you know, White Oak, Pungo, New Newport, I don't have any data to support they're there. I'm not going to say they're not. It's possible, but I haven't seen any, and I haven't gotten any reports. So Yeah, and they're showing up on the Roanoke, below Roanoke Rapids? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. They're coming out of the lake. Coming out of the lake, getting out into the river. You know, that could also be another reason why, you know, it's a combination of things, but why the noose has been so good too. So Maybe. Yeah, you know, certainly doesn't hurt anything. The reason I brought it up is we talk about fish needing water, and we have mantras on our show. One of the mantras is, please stop moving fish. Blue light special. Yeah, blue light special, but really and truly, folks, we've dealt with over the past month here in our division, we've dealt with a lot of aquatic nuisance species that are outside of Alabama bass. It's It's been been a a strong month. It's been a tidal wave in the month of September into October. It's been a tidal wave of ANS species for us, so... You know, folks, if I can tell you anything, please stop moving fish. You're probably not even realize you're moving animals, you know, so clean your equipment, dry your equipment, don't move those species around. And so we don't know what Alabama bass will do for our coastal fisheries. We don't know how well they'll take into the coastal rivers. All accounts are every time people think that Alabama bass aren't going to be that effective in this environment, they are. And so time will tell. But, you know, we already have them in the Roanoke now. We have them in the tar. What that means for our native largemouth along the coast, I'm not sure. I completely appreciate somebody getting a fish and not wanting to kill it and wanting to turn it loose. If you turn it loose. Turn it loose right where you It needs it. to go back where you got it from. That's, exactly that's right. the take-home message there. Don't take it home to your pond. That is not yeah. the blue light special. That yeah. is the perfectly legal thing to do is to release yeah. a fish where you caught it from. That's right. And just don't transport it to somewhere different and turn it loose. That's yeah. the problem. I mean, even people that catch a largemouth and say, well, I'm going to take it home to my pond, which is actually a legal thing. You can do that because the pond is private water, but. Even that is dangerous. You can be moving an animal from You can be one, moving diseases. Yeah, diseases. You can be moving animals that are attached to the fish. You just don't know what you're doing because you can't see it. 
And so, I mean, a lot of the ANS species that we're dealing with right now that we'll probably talk about on the podcast at some point is there are animals when they're in their juvenile stage are microscopic. You can't see them. And so you can move them just through the water, just by taking a tank of water from one place to the other can move them. So anyway, I want to talk about Alabama bass because that's definitely something going on. All right, Ben, time for questions. All right. We got three questions. Y'all have sent us a bunch of questions. It's been great, man. And we really appreciate y'all's interactions. It's been exactly what I wanted the podcast to be when you and I had this idea way back was having this interaction with our anglers. And so, like I said, I'm just excited about it. We got a Cub Scout club, and they've invited us to their fishing event. We may have to go. When is it? October 7th. We can't go. Can't go. (laughs) It's in Greenville. TD might be able to go. Maybe. But we do have staff that goes and conducts fishing events and helps with fishing events. And so it is something that we as an agency do. And so that's why I picked this question to talk about that. If you have an event that you would like our assistance with for Fish for Fun event, you can go to our webpage and we have a form that you can fill out. And if we have the staff and the time available, we'll be happy to participate. You know, you can also reach out to your local fish biologist and they can get you plugged in too. We have a whole division. We have a wildlife education division. This is a part of what they do. It's not all that they do. Obviously, we're limited on people power. You know, we don't have people to be everywhere every weekend, so that's part of it. But yes, absolutely. Please get in contact with us. If we have the staff and we have the time, we will definitely try to make it out there. Personally, I know everybody at this table is pretty strong into kids should fish, you know. Yes. And so if you're looking for help with an event, you can email us and we will help you in the best way we can. Yep. So that's right. We can't be at everything because we can't be at everything. but. We will try to get you plugged in where you can. (laughs) I like how I said, we should go to that. And you said, October something. No, we can't. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, Cub Scouts. But you see, his knee-jerk reaction is we should go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That speaks to the agency's dedication to fishing. I've done a lot of fishing fishing events, for sure. Right. A ton. We got a guy who wants to fish the Great Smoky National Parks. He's in the no live bait zone. Oh, Yes. When it comes to trout, you can go to our webpage. The trout page is a wealth of information. We've talked about it multiple times on the show. Yep. He's in the no live bait zone, but he's wondering if he could dig a worm up right there on the bank and use that for bait. No, it's still live bait. Right. Whether you bring it or whether you dig it, it's still live bait. Unfortunately, I, I appreciate the thought and the resourcefulness. Yeah, I mean, I've caught many a cricket on the bank and thrown it out there, so I get what he's talking about. But in that particular water body, you're not allowed to use live bait for trout. Right. It's not about where the bait came from. It's about the gear itself. It's about the gear itself. So that is going to be an artificial, uh, it might be artificial fly, artificial lure only. I can't remember exactly right. what that is, but it's one of those. Mm-hmm. And so you can't use live bait no matter where you got it from. Right. Sorry. Good question. Yeah, it's a great question. Because there are some distinctions Mm -hmm. in the trout fishery, and you do. Now, the cool thing about it is, is it's normally tacked up on a tree somewhere nearby. Yes. And so we do a great job of trying to market it, or mark it, not market it, but. Market. Yeah. Mark what you are, where you are, what you can use. And it says what you can do on the signs. And before you go, like Ben mentioned, just go to our website, ncwildlife.org, go to our trout page. There's 
all the trout streams that are public mountain trout water in the state there, and it'll tell you exactly what you can do where. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last question. Think fishing opportunities. Top three lakes lives near Raleigh. Whoa. Well. There's a myriad of choices. Yeah, there's, yeah. I don't know that I could narrow it down to a top three. I mean, there are a ton of small municipal lakes in the Triangle area that allows for bank fishing opportunities. They might, some charge small fees, some don't, but they're basically run by municipalities. You can get that information, once again, at our website at ncwildlife.org. Go to where to fish. You will see there's a program called the Community Fishing Program that we sponsor. Not all of those sites are community fishing program sites. Some are, some aren't, but they are still there on our website and tell you that you can go fishing there. There's probably 2025 just in Wake County. I mean, there's all kinds you can of go, places. I mean, and also, you know, Raleigh Parks, you can look at their webpage. Yep. Raleigh Parks will have it. Uh, Wake County Parks will have it. Yeah. Right. And even the Greenway along the Noose River is yep. miles yes. of yes. accessible That's right. fishing that you could do. So, I mean, I can name a few off the top of my head. There's Shelly Lake, there's uh, Lake Wheeler, which is Simpkins Pond. There's Bass Lake down in the Apex Holly Springs area. There's the one right here on Centennial Campus. There's one right here at Centennial Campus called Lake Raleigh. Like you mentioned, that's in the Anderson Park there. Anderson Park. Yeah. Raleigh Beach. There's several Beach, right yeah. there along the news. There's also an Anderson Park in Carver. There's a couple of places over in Durham. So, like I said, there are a ton of bank fishing opportunities in the Triangle area. Yeah, I think the Triangle's... Got a l- Maybe has more than anywhere. In fact, I will say they have more that I know about anywhere in the state. Greensboro is another strong municipal mm-hmm. area. They have probably seven or eight community fishing program sites just in Greensboro and Guilford County alone. So there's another great place if you're living in a city to go fishing. TD, you got anything to add? Anything you want to... Do we skip over anything? No, I think we covered it well. I just wanted to basically repeat what we already said. You know, if you see Alabama bass, make sure to let us know. It helps Take us a picture. out. Take a picture. Take a picture of the side of the fish, the whole side of the fish. Besides that, yeah, just enjoy it, man. The rivers are super cool out there. And one thing I'll leave you with is on the tar, don't be afraid to use a beetle spin, and you'll have a lot of fun with that. And especially when you go to the upper tar from, like, Tarboro to Auckland, it changes a lot from the rest of the tar. It gets real clear shallow and you can sight fish for bass it's a lot of fun sounds like we had another podcast we got another podcast talk about sight fishing for bass there you go it's great well td we thank you so much and folks we thank you for listening and we will see you next time thank you guys thank you thank you for listening to the north carolina wildlife resources commission's podcast better fishing with two ball biologists for more information please visit ncwildlife.org or email us at twobaldbiologist at ncwildlife.org.